It is a good day today, isn't it? It's always a good day when we get to join in with what God is doing. Now, who's wondering how long, seriously, are we going to be staying in Acts? Anyone else wondering that? It's Okay, good, good. Because we're going to stay there until it's done, all right? So if you're wondering, we're going to be in Acts until we get through the whole book, unless the Spirit leads otherwise, but that's the plan at the moment. And there's a few reasons that it's actually been really important that we go through Acts. You see, this church has been around for many years. It was actually founded in 1902. I actually had a look at a few books in my office this week that I found um, that go back through and explain some of that history. And there was one particularly put together for the 75th anniversary of the church. Um, but it, it, this church has had a long uh, presence in this city with varying degrees over the time of gospel effectiveness. And so I really see this as a moment where we can take stock of how we are going, you know, and prepare ourselves and posture ourselves correctly for the future that God will be laying out for us over the rest of this year. You see, we can easily look at the things that God has blessed us with. I mean, we have a fantastic facility here. It's a great blessing. We've also got some money set aside for the future, and that's also a great blessing. And I don't want us to think that now that you know we're beginning a new work, that we can press pause on taking risks for the glory of God and the good of his gospel, or even take a break from sharing the gospel. And so if we have been taking a break, then I want to reinvigorate a passion for the gospel and seeing people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's why we've been going through Acts, and we'll continue to go through that in chapters 13 and 14 today of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to start in in verses 13, um, and I'm just going to quickly outline broad brush strokes what happens through the chapters, and then we're going to get into some teaching. So um, we, we, we have seen throughout the, 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 the book of Acts so far, the gospel spreading across socioeconomic lines, across languages, across ethnic lines, and across countries, and that continues with Paul and Barnabas taking their first missionary journey together. And so they head out from Antioch to Seleucia. They sail to Cyprus. They proclaim the gospel there. They go on to Paphos, then to Perga in Pamphylia, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles. They continue to Antioch in Pisidia, where half the people believed, both Jews and Gentiles, but caused such a division and unrest that they were driven out of the region. They shook the dust off their feet because they were not welcome, and they headed to Iconium and were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And this is pretty amazing. They just got booted out of somewhere, but yet the scriptures tell us they were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. When you get kicked out of somewhere, do you feel that you're filled with joy? No, but that's what they were. And in chapter 14, we see them preaching the gospel at Iconium, but here of a plan that would see them mistreated. And so then the Bible tells us that they flee to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and there continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, they healed a crippled man that had been crippled since birth. But the people there, get this, they mistake them for not being Paul and Barnabas, that they think that Zeus and Hermes have come. You know, and so they try and, you know, set these people up as living gods amongst them. And Paul and Barnabas try as they will, they do all they can to explain to these people that, no, 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 they are not Zeus and Hermes. 
that was actually created God that had sustained them. It was Jesus that had uh, saved them and the Holy Spirit had sent them and they scarcely restrained the people offering sacrifices to them. Opposition to Paul grew and they actually stoned Paul. We've seen what happened with Stephen. Stephen got stoned, he died. They stoned Paul and dragged his lifeless body out of the city. Then when the disciples gathered around him to no doubt prepare his body for burial, he rose up, entered the city, and the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe, then preached the gospel and made disciples there, and then returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, encouraging and strengthening the believers as they went, explaining that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Then they set about appointing elders in every church. They then passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the gospel in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed back to Antioch, where they shared with the believers there how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The gospel of Jesus Christ was spreading rapidly, and it can't be stopped. It can't be slowed down. So God will accomplish his purposes. It is a certainty because God cannot fail. As I said last week, the mission of God to declare the work of Jesus to the ends of the earth cannot be stopped regardless of adversary. And so even now we see massive growth in Christians in Africa where there is great persecution of Christians. You know, a little while ago the Pew Foundation and NATO forecast there to be 633 million Christians in Africa by 2025. And there's even more in Asia growing. And South America, the gospel's exploding there. And so even in Europe, churches are being planted and people are being saved. But today I want to take a close look at the church in Antioch because in the church in Antioch, we see a great example of, of, of things of how I would love our church to be and how I would love us to operate and, and, and some ways that I think we could do really well to, to emulate the wide and how they are wide at this church, you know, because the opposite side of this is that we, we drift and we become less than what the gospel demands of us as a family of faith. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. And so we're just going to sit there for the rest of today, um, except for a little bit of explanation here and, here and there, but we'll always be coming back to this for the rest of today. Verse 1, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set us apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Now I think it becomes clear that for the church in Antioch, far more than the church in Jerusalem, which incidentally is where all the apostles were except for Saul, um, the, 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 the church in Antioch is a gospel-centered church. They are a church that have been shaped by, molded by, and fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus Christ has come, he has absorbed God's wrath towards all sin, and he's imputed to all those who are repentant his righteousness, so that men and women are seen as sons and daughters who are perfectly blameless and spotless in his sight, regardless of background. And the reason I'm confident that Antioch is this kind of church 
is for three reasons. The first reason is this. The gospel reconciles. You know, there is a, a relational dynamic in this church in Antioch that really is a sight to behold. Because if you think about it, the main two leaders of this church are Paul, or sorry, Saul, we'll get to Paul later, he'll get there, uh, are Saul and Barnabas. Now, what do we know about Saul and Barnabas? Well, we actually know a fair bit from this book in Acts. And the very fact that these were ever friends that worked together for the cause of Christ is a testimony of the mercy of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain why. Because Barnabas, we meet him in Acts chapter 4, 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So it's safe to say that Joseph slash Barnabas is in, right? He's fully committed. He's signed up. He's committed to the cause. And I reckon that when the apostles rename you, like, you know, hi, I'm Joseph. No, you're not. I've seen you. You are just a massive encouragement. I'm going to rename you Barnabas, son of encouragement. I reckon that when the apostles rename you, you're in, right? Don't you reckon? And have you ever met people like that? People who just sort of ooze encouragement and joy, you know, that, that are always encouraging, always speaking life. So you, you, you just see in Barnabas that, that this is just oozing out of him. And not only has his spirit and his temperament changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but his hold on his wealth and what had been given to him by God had just completely also loosened up under the gospel. He sold a field, some property that he had, and he didn't try to manage it. He didn't divvy it out as he saw fit. He laid it at the apostles' feet. And so now we have a generous man, an encouraging man, and a man who has absolutely no problem coming under or submitting fully to godly authority. Now Barnabas didn't do this to suck up to the apostles and carry some favour with them or anything and try and win their affection, because right after that very verse in Barnabas, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira who tried to do that, and God killed them. So Barnabas, he's in. You know, he is legit, as the young people say. Not only that, but he's also in the inner circle, part of the leadership of this church in Jerusalem. But in Jerusalem at this time also is Saul, and he's hanging out there, and we see him right after the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, you probably can't get two people with further apart life goals than these two brothers, can you? I mean, on one hand, you've got Barnabas, who was selling possessions and with his mouth trying to, you know, bring life and, and build up the church. And on the other hand, you have Saul, with all his wealth and his energies, trying to destroy the church. Now, Although it's not in the text, it's not a leap to say that surely Barnabas knew some of the men and women who Saul had carried off, kicked their door down and dragged them out into the street and had 
committed them to prison. See, this, the church wasn't massive at this point in time, and so I reckon it's safe to say he probably would have personally known some of the people that Saul was persecuting and putting in prison. So how did these two guys get to working together to build up the church? Through the gospel. Because the gospel, it reconciles people. The gospel reconciles people who you think in no way could be reconciled. And this is miraculous. These two guys working together to build up the church despite their history, despite all that had gone down, despite the hatred that these two must have had once had towards the stance that each other took towards the church of Jesus Christ. And if we're honest, we often dislike people who have never actually ever done anything personally against us, but have hurt someone we love. If we're honest, that's us. And you know what? Now we don't trust them. We don't like them. In fact, we'll be even willing to talk to other people about their lack of integrity, how they can't be trusted, how they're liars, because they've hurt someone that we love. Not us personally, but someone we love. It's human nature to be like that. Yet the gospel so moved upon Barnabas and so moved upon Saul that these two partner up with one another for the building up of the church and in some of the most difficult circumstances willing to even die together for the gospel. We read today, Paul got stoned, not in the modern version of that explanation. And so we see here that the gospel reconciles people And we see that present in the church in Antioch. Their two primary leaders and teachers in the church in Antioch were at one time enemies, but the gospel reconciled them. We also see that the gospel redeemed. There was another bloke called Menaean, and he was a friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So what do we know about Herod the Tetrarch? Well, the Herods are not a great bunch of people. Herod the Great if you remember the Christmas story, was the one that after the wise men did not return and report uh, on finding Jesus, he had all the baby boys, two years old and under, killed in Bethlehem because he was concerned about losing his throne. On top of that, Herod the Great had his brother-in-law executed, he had his mother-in-law executed, no cheers please, and then he had his second wife executed. This is a completely dysfunctional family. And so Herod the Tetrarch is not Herod the Great, he is Herod Antipas, and he is also a complete train wreck. And he was lifelong friends with Menaean. They grew up together. And we know that Herod Antipas married his stepbrother's ex-wife. Awkward much? I mean, imagine that at family reunions, right? But we know that upon marrying his stepbrother's ex-wife, she had an adult daughter. And let's say she was a bit on the sultry side. And so one night the family are together and they're drinking and, you know, partying, whatever, you, you know, Herods do. And in comes his wife's daughter, And she does a provocative dance, to say the least. And Herod is filled with lust. I mean, talk about depravity, right? And says to her, anything in my kingdom is yours. Tell me what it is. And she says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So Herod Antipas gives it to her. He has John the Baptist killed, his head cut off and put on a platter and brought to this unsavory girl. Then on the night that Jesus was arrested, right before he is crucified, Pilate is gleefully filled with joy to find out that Jesus is actually from Bethlehem. And so he sends Jesus to Herod to wash his hands of it all. 
Herod's excited because he has heard that Jesus is like some kind of, of magician, you know, and so he, he, he gets all of his court together to come watch a magic show. Yet Jesus refuse, refuses to perform miracles, and so the soldiers mock him, they beat him, and they send him back to Pilate. This is Herod Antipas. And at the church of Antioch, Menaeus is a dear and lifelong friend of Herod. And yet we see him that he is in the inner circle of leadership of this church. How does that happen? Well, once again, this is a testimony of the gospel's power to overcome our past. The gospel overcomes our past. The most consistent lie that we often believe is that we're too far gone, we've made too many mistakes, or there's no way that God could use us, save us, forgive us, and we are beyond the reach of God. And that, you know what, he wouldn't want us anyway. But can I tell you that that is a lie? That is not the truth. It's not how about how awful you are. It's actually about how awesome he is. In fact, it is the habit, if not the consistent practice of God, to pull from the fringes of darkness his brightest light. That is his preference. Did you know that you cannot outsin God's grace. You can't. There's nothing that you can do that takes you beyond the reach of God's redemption and of his forgiveness. You can't out his grace. So whatever's gone on in your life, and you might say, Aaron, you don't know what I've done. And no, I don't know what you've done, but God does, and he still died for you. Isn't that amazing? The gospel redeems. The grace of Jesus Christ is so great that nothing we do can separate us from his love. We have all sinned and fallen short of God, yet God still died for you and he still died for me. I want us to get this today because if you think that you are not worthy to serve him, that if you're not worthy to honour him with your life, you're not worthy to, to lead others, you're not worthy to speak life into others around you because of what you've done, because of your sin, well, that's everybody. Yet God chooses us. He says, I want you to serve me and I've given you gifts for you to activate and use in his church. And so the gospel redeems our past. God's grace is greater than anything we could ever do. We are redeemed by the gospel. You know what? There's a whole slew of men in the Bible who would chuckle at what we think is too far, isn't there? Manan's presence in Antioch shows us that the gospel not only has the power to take what is old and make it new, but it shows a level of trust of people who with even the darkest of paths are being changed by the gospel and being led into the very heart of Christian ministry. The gospel redeemed. That is powerful. And the gospel restores. See, there's this type of diversity in the church of Antioch that is astounding for that time and even, really, for, for times such as these today. Because we've got Barnabas, right? And he's a Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus. If you look at the list that is given us of all the people, I'm just going through it. Barnabas. There's Simeon. He's of unknown origin, but we're told that they call him Niger. And Niger is Latin for black. And so... All the commentaries, the only thing they agree on about Simeon is that he's a black dude. So we've got a man from Cyprus who's a Hellenistic Jew. We've got a black dude. We've got Lucius, and he's from Cyrene. And we're told that he's an African as well. We've got Menaean 
he's a Palestinian Greek Herodian. And finally, you've got Saul of Tarsus, who grew up in Jerusalem and is a Jew, but not the same kind of Jew that Barnabas is. He's a Hebraic Jew. And so in just this list of five people, we have an amazing diversity of heritage. So these men would have been trained from birth to despise the other men on this list, to feel superior to the other men on this list, to position themselves as more intelligent and more intrinsically valuable than the other men on this list. And the gospel showed up and it blew it all away. It tore down the walls of hostility. It broke down the walls of cultural identification and created a new body, a new people, a new family. Where we were once alienated and separate, he makes us one. There is no longer Jew and Gentile, no longer slave and free, no longer black and white. We're all one in Christ. And the gospel does that. The gospel does that work. It restores a community to wholeness. It restores what our culture has broken. It restores to us a family of love and acceptance for all, regardless of heritage, regardless of skin color, regardless of education. And you can put any other division that you like to separate people in that and to say, regardless of that, the gospel restores. See, there's an amazing diversity here in the church in Antioch. And they all get along. They all get along because the gospel restores God's desire and his plan for his community. That we are not separated by these boxes that humanity, we tend to put each people in. Those are done away with in the gospel. So what is our gospel response? On top of this type of relational harmony that is, is hard to get a mind around in Antioch, you also see that they are a group of men that are serious about seeking the Lord and hearing from him. And so they're together and fasting and worshipping and praying and listening to God. Now, if you look in the text, it doesn't actually say that they were listening to God. But what it does say is that the Holy Spirit spoke and they obeyed what the Holy Spirit said. Which leads me to believe that not only were they praying, worshipping, fasting, but they were dialed in to hear from the Lord so that they might respond in faith and obedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit for gospel work. So let's just briefly talk about how we listen to the Lord and how the Lord speaks. See, I passionately believe that God speaks to us in thousands of different ways, in thousands of them. I'm sure that you can testify to all the myriad of different ways that God has spoken to you through people, through visions, through dreams, through a word of encouragement, through a tree. I mean, God speaks to us in a thousand different ways. But get this, those ways will never, ever contradict, go against or disprove the revealed word of God. In fact, if we want to hear from the Lord, then we grow in our knowledge of the word of God so that we understand his character, we understand his will, we understand what God is all about, we understand what he is after. We dial into his character as he has revealed himself to us in his word so that when we do think the Lord is leading, it is informed and filtered by the word of God. There are truths that work for all time in all places and in all peoples and these truths have been revealed to us in the word of God. The filter for the Lord leading us 
is the word of God. It is the scriptures. However, nowhere in the Bible does it tell me I'm supposed to marry Kelly. She's not in there. There's no scripture that says, Aaron, you're supposed to marry Kelly. But it did tell me that marriage is good. It did tell me that I'm going to be sanctified in marriage. It did tell me that I would be blessed in marriage. And so that I would also know the Lord more in marriage. And so it told me to seek a woman who's after him. So I saw and continued to see in Kelly a growing love for the Lord, a desire to serve him, a desire to walk alongside and support me as we serve the Lord together. What about coming here? I didn't see Wangaratta Baptist Church in the Bible. Do you? I mean, these ones may because it might be stamped in there. But I even checked the index this week and no, it's not there. So, so how, did, how did I know that God was leading us here? You know, where, where's that in the Bible? Well, I'll tell you, God has gifted me and he has skilled me and has given me experiences that he wants me to use for the building up of his church and the good of his people. And so it's not a leap, it's not a blind leap of faith to come to Wangaratta Baptist Church because where I was and what I was doing was not fulfilling his plans and purposes and so that's created within me an unrest. And so I felt I need to step out in faith and follow the Lord's guidance. And so when Wangaratta Baptist Church came up, it wasn't a blind or insane step of faith. It was sort of almost like just the logical next step. That's what God has in store. You know, and so God spoke. I listened. We listened. We all responded in faith. And we trust that God is who he says he is. And he hasn't failed us yet. And that's what they were doing in the church in Antioch. They were listening. They were obedient, even if it cost them something. So what we know about Barnabas and Saul is that they had spent the last two years building up, evangelizing, pouring into these men and training them and equipping them and building them up. And there's no doubt that these two men were the conduits for which God had been moving in power among the church at Antioch. And at this prayer meeting, this seeking of the Lord's will, God shows up and said through the Holy Spirit that those vessels who I've been using so powerfully in your life, I'm going to send them elsewhere. And Antioch, you know, surely it hurts. But they said, okay. And they laid hands on them and they blessed them and they sent them out. It's amazing. And do you know why it is amazing? Because people have a tendency to love vessels rather than loving the one who flows through and is contained in that vessel. You know, if God has done a profound work in your heart and he has used someone to accomplish that, then what has occurred in your heart is not due to that person at all, but rather is due to the Holy Spirit inside that person flowing out of that person to do a work in you. And so the praise of what God has done in your heart goes to God not to the person. The Bible does tell us that a person is to be honoured as the servant of the Lord, but not to be exalted past that, because it's not good for them. It's not good for us. It robs us of worship, and it puts too much pressure on them. You know, I know my many failings. Kelly probably knows way more of them than she graciously makes me aware of. But I know that God uses people to do his work. So we need to ensure that when God does do something and God does use someone to do his work, that all praise goes to the Lord, not to his vessels for that work. Now in Australian culture, we are pretty good at chopping people down. You know, anyone sticks up, doesn't good, we just whack them until they get back down, right? That's the Australian culture way. The tall poppy syndrome is what it's colloquially known as. And so 
I think sometimes we actually miss the honour that we should bestow on people who God has been using. Now, I don't think that we should actually go too far in this, but I think that there needs to be honour given to people who are faithfully serving the Lord. And we should be encouraging people to do that. Because so often we don't even recognise when someone does something good. So I love the fact that we can actually celebrate those amongst us who God is blessing us through. You know, uh, uh, you might have noticed on our Facebook page, I chucked a photo of Will up there the other week. Because the amount of blessing that Will brings to our family is amazing. He should be honoured for that. He should be, we should be thankful for what he does because he's serving the Lord. So we don't give glory to Will. We give glory to the Lord for using Will, right? It is God who is building up the church. That, that's what he, his, his plan has been since Jesus came, was for the church to be built through his work. It's God who is building up the church. And so Antioch, they didn't panic when the Holy Spirit said, free up Barnabas, free up Saul. They didn't panic. They laid hands on them and sent them out. So when we let people go, it stings. Last week we farewelled Josh and Jess as they headed around a trip around Australia. We're going to miss them greatly. They're a great young couple. And when missionaries go out, it's the same. You know, and we've even felt this too as we've sort of like left some friends from our church in Frankston. And I'm sure that many of us have had these experiences of when we've left one church and come up here. Anyone that's moved to Wangaratta, you know what I'm talking about. Well, what we do get is eternity with these men and women that we've said goodbye to. And so the church in Antioch, they were generous with the people God had given to them, and they obediently did what the Spirit said, setting up Barnabas and Saul. And I hope too that we can have that same posture of obedience to what the Holy Spirit says to us. You know, and I'm believing that this is also going to benefit us as God says, leads other people to join us here as well and sending people to us, people who are obedient to the Spirit's guidance, to join with us for the work that he wants to accomplish here in this place. So as I close today, I want to remind us of the strengths that made the church in Antioch such a great model for us today. Primarily, it's because it was a gospel-centered church. That's the main reason. And what we saw today with these three things was that the gospel reconciles. The gospel reconciles relationships so that even one-time enemies can work together for the glory of God and the good of his ministry and the gospel here. The gospel redeems. The gospel redeems our past so even the most sinful of pasts can be redeemed and our lives used for the glory of God and the good of his ministry and his gospel. And the gospel restores. The gospel restores unity where there was none. It restores wholeness where it was broken. It restores family where it was fragmented. The gospel breaks down the barriers that we put up and instead restores us for the glory of God and the good of his ministry. So I guess the question that we do have though is what is our response? Our response is to listen intently to the Holy Spirit and then respond in faith and obedience to what he is saying to us. So the question is, have you been listening? What has God been saying to you? Maybe God has been speaking to you and asking you to step up, to serve, to to agree to to a position of leadership potentially or to to say to you you know what you have been doing i want more yes 
Well done. Good and faithful servant. Keep going. Maybe it's to respond to faith and maybe you've never said yes to the gospel before. Maybe you've never said, Lord Jesus, yes, I want to serve you. You know, I, I, I feel and understand how much you love me and so I want to respond in faith and obedience today to what you've been saying to me. What has God been saying to you? I'm going to pray and I just want that prayer to be almost like a prayer of dedication that we commit ourselves to hearing and to listening and to seeking to dial into what God is saying and to respond in faith and obedience. Let me pray today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gospel is so amazing in the way that it works in our lives and in our churches. Lord, we want to be a gospel-centered church because the power in the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has come and he has died for us, that he's made a way for us to be reconciled with you. Lord, the gospel, it reconciles. The gospel, it redeems. The gospel, it restores. And so, Lord, we want to respond today in faith and obedience to what you've been saying to us. Lord, we ask that you continue to speak life in into us. We ask that we adopt a posture that takes the time to listen intently to what you are saying to us and that we respond with obedience when you do speak. So Lord, we ask that you convict our hearts of areas of sin and that we bring those to you in repentant hearts, Lord Jesus. Forgive us of our sin. Lord, we ask that you speak to us and you convict our hearts of where you want us to be active in the mission of sharing the gospel in this community. Lord, we ask that you convict us of areas where you would want us to reconcile relationships with other people. We ask that, Lord, you convict our hearts of of things in our life, in our past, in our, our history that we feel guilty about, that, Lord, you are saying to us now, you have redeemed, you have repurposed. Lord, we ask that you convict us of areas where we need to restore your order, your thinking, your guidance, your plans, your purpose, where we have then implanted our own. So Lord, we ask that you speak to us today and Lord, give us the courage to respond in faith and obedience, Lord Jesus. Amen.